Hey everybody, it's Matt Zola from Fern Creek Christian Church. So glad you're able to tune in with us today. Hey, while you're on your phone, why don't you go ahead and follow us on social media at Fern Creek CC on Facebook and Instagram. And you can download the Fern Creek Christian Church app on your phone today. We hope this message encourages you to become a better follower of Jesus, to be a disciple that makes more disciples. So without further ado, here's the message. Well, hey, good morning, Fern Creek. It's great to see you. Great to be back home with you. Last week, 41 of us returned from the Holy Land, and we, uh, we got to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We took 41 home, uh, took 41 away. We brought the exact same 41 home. So that was a success. And boy, we got to see things and experience things. If you've never gone to Israel, if you've never walked, we, we do it every couple of years. I'd love for you to join us because you will forever read the Bible in color. So thanks for praying with us and for us. Man, we appreciate it immensely. Hey, when it, when it comes to sports, now I'm talking any sport. Football, basketball, baseball, boxing, pole vaulting, we'll even throw curling in there as a sport, right? Any sport at all, there's an attempt to find the GOAT of that sport. You heard that, the GOAT? GOAT stands for the greatest of all time, right? So it's try to find the GOAT in every sport. Some GOATs are like debated. For example, in boxing, who's boxing's GOAT? Well, we would say who? Ali, of course. Other people say, no, it's Mike Tyson or Mayweather. So there's a little bit of a, maybe an argument there. (laughs) Professional wrestling, who's the GOAT? Hulk Hogan, The Undertaker, The Rock? That's debatable, right? So some GOATs are debatable. Other GOATs are crystal clear. There is no argument. Secretariat, the GOAT. No other horse ever comes close. Babe Ruth, Michael Jordan, some GOATs are crystal clear. Now think about it this way. We talk about GOATs the greatest of all time. How many sermons do you think have been preached since, you know, since, since Jesus's day? Millions of sermons have been preached. Gazillions of sermons have been preached. And in all those sermons, there have been some pretty good ones. S.M. Lockridge's sermon, That's My King. If you've never heard Lockridge's sermon, That's My King, you need to go listen to it. That, that was a great sermon. You've got, uh, you've got Dwight Moody's sermon, The Lord's Work. Unbelievable. you got Tony Campalo's sermon. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming, right? I mean, that's an awesome sermon. Now, look, listen, as awesome as those sermons were, as inspirational, as remembered as they are, none of them, not a single one of them are even in the same category as the goat, the greatest of all time. Not one of them can share the stage with the greatest sermon of all time. I'm telling you, the greatest sermon of all time has got to be the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever to be preached by the greatest preacher to ever ever live. (coughs) When you read the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, about 2,500 words. Uh, It'd take you about 18 minutes to read it word for word. And while the length is short, the depth of this sermon could never, ever, ever be fully plumbed. Like like I'm talking the Lord's Prayer is in that sermon. The Beatitudes is in that sermon. The Golden Rule, you are the light of the world. The wise man built his house on the rock. 
Jesus teaches on hatred, lust, divorce, money, loving your enemy, fasting, worry. I'm telling you, this sermon is the dictionary for discipleship. It is the roadmap for righteousness. It is the manifesto of Messiah Jesus. And for the next 17 weeks, we're going to rip that up. We're going to dig down. We're going to rip off the surface. We're going to mine and dig for buried treasure within this text. And my prayer, our prayer should be, God, at the end of this, in the middle of this, at the beginning of this, may we walk away being deeper disciples, more in love with Jesus. So let's dive into the Sermon on the Mount. Take a look at this picture. Let me give you some background before we jump in. This is the Sea of Galilee. Several of us were uh, floating on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. We traveled all around it. The, the, the northeast side, you see that little red, that little red marker? That's the city of Capernaum. Or Capernaum. Capernaum is the hometown of Peter and Andrew. The apostles of Jesus. Matthew the tax collector is collecting taxes in Capernaum before Jesus calls him to follow. Capernaum will be the headquarters for the three and a half year ministry of Jesus. So it's an important city. Right on the hillside, right above Capernaum, tradition tells us is where Jesus gave this sermon, this sermon on the mount. Now, now, when you read Matthew's gospel, the end of chapter four, we see Jesus teaching and preaching and healing all kinds of diseases to such a degree that at the end of Matthew chapter four, Matthew ends that chapter by saying, everybody went out to see him. All these people went to hear him, went to see him, went to be healed by him. So the end of Matthew chapter four, all these great crowds are going. Watch how he opens chapter five. Look at verse one. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them saying, okay, stop for a second. Before we get into the Beatitudes, before we get into the sermon, a little background information, Jesus has all these enormous crowds following, hundreds, maybe thousands of people following. And instead of teaching this sermon down on the beach, down by the seaside, Jesus is going to make it harder for them to hear him. So he climbs this mountain. He climbs this hillside. He says, you want to know what I'm all about? You want to know what life in the kingdom is all about? Well, climb with me. Come on up here with me. Now, now <laughs> yeah, we just got back. It's hot in the Holy Land, right? So, you, you know, the crowd, I don't know if I really want to climb. I, didn't, I, I wore my Crocs. I don't have my hiking boots. Like, I didn't have breakfast. I might bonk, you know. Jesus, you, I'll stay. The crowd had to thin because here's what we, the crowd doesn't climb. The crowd doesn't struggle. The crowd doesn't push. The crowd doesn't dig. The crowd wants easy. They want fish and chips, right? They, they, they miss the treasure, so how many people didn't climb with him? How many people missed hearing the greatest sermon of all time? Probably a lot. That's the crowd. But the disciples went. And that they teach us something. See, disciples follow no matter how hot. The disciple will climb even in his crocs. The disciple digs, the disciple does the hard work, and the disciple hears the sermon. The disciple finds the treasure. So as we start this 17-week journey, it's a question I'm going to ask you every week. What posture are you, are you going to take? What posture am I going to take? Am I going to be the crowd that just kind of hears the words and just lets them kind of stay on the surface? There'll be some words that you're going to hear that you're not going to like. 
What are you going to do with that? Are you going, well, I, I, won't, I, I don't really need to apply that. Are you going to be a, a crowd posture? Or will you take the posture of a disciple every single week and say, you know what? Jesus, teach me. Jesus, help me to dig. Even when I don't like it, help me to, to receive. It's, 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 a, it's a critical question. What posture will we take? The other thing that strikes me about this, this where, you know, when Jesus went up on the mountain and he sat down to teach the disciples, I love that. I love the fact that Jesus sat and the apostles stood while he taught. That's how the rabbis did it. The rabbis in Jesus' day would sit and their disciples would stand and they would teach that way. I love that because every week you, you sit and I stand and I got to preach to you, right? So I'm like, man, that would have been pretty cool. Would you just humor me? Would you, would you just humor me for a few seconds? Would everybody stand up. Just, just humor me. Stand up for a second. Everybody stand up. Come on. I, I, I'm never going to get this chance again. <sighs> for the next 20 minutes, I'd like to. No, no. No. All right. Everybody have a seat. Everybody have a seat. Thanks for humoring me. Jesus sat. The disciples gathered around him. And uh, he, begins, he begins to teach them what life in the kingdom is all about. So let's, let's dig into it. Look at Matthew chapter five, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, who went before you. I'm telling you, he begins the greatest sermon ever preached with something we call today the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. There are eight Beatitudes, and each Beatitude begins with a phrase or a word, blessed. So before we unpack the Beatitudes, you got to understand what does Jesus mean when he says the word blessed? Because blessed can mean lots of things to lots of people. So what's the Greek word? The Greek word Jesus uses makarios, makarios. Turn to your neighbor, tell them makarios. Oh, you're Greek speakers. I love it. I love it. Makarios. Makarios can be translated lots of different ways. One, one way that some people translate it, I don't like it. One way some people translate happy, happy. Sometimes you're happy are those who mourn. And I'm like, well, how in the world are you happy if you mourn? So some people translate it happy, right? And the reason why they translate it happy is because we all want happy. Happy is happy sells. Happy's in. Happy is cool. Happy is, I mean, we all want happy. And when we find happy, what do we want? We want other people to know we're happy. And that's what Facebook's all about, right? I mean, just look through Facebook. What do you see when people, they call it a highlight reel, right? We, we post our happy. We want everybody to know that we're happy, right? Uh, toes in the sand, umbrella drink in my hand, living the blessed life, right? Or some people, everybody's smiling at Disney World with Mickey Mouse, hashtag blessed. You know, Facebook uh, loves that. And people buy into that. 
I wish Facebook were realistic. I wish instead of a highlight reel, there was a low light reel. Where's the low light reel on, where is the picture of the sink full of dirty dishes? Living the blessed life, right? No, you don't see that. What wife posts, face brags about her husband with a picture, his big old fat gut breaching his waistband, five day scruffy beard, lazy eye darting to the left, you know, living the blessed life. No, no, we, we don't post any of that. Uh, we, we want people to know the good stuff, the happy stuff. And, and there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with sharing, you know, that, that we're happy. But, but, but here's where, Here's where we got to pause. Hear me. Some people can begin to buy this idea. Some people can begin to, to, to embrace this concept that if my life looks good, if my life feels good, then I must be good with God. Because look at what he's doing for me. So if my life looks good, feels good, it's got to be good. I am good with God. And Jesus comes along and he says, no. No, the blessed life has nothing to do with your appearance, with the beach, or with your Facebook highlight reel. Jesus is going to teach us that blessed is not some warm, fuzzy, cozy, giddy feeling that ebbs today and flows tomorrow like happiness can be. When Jesus says blessed, I don't think he's really meaning happy. You know what I think he's meaning? Another definition, congratulations. If you go back from now on and you read the Beatitudes, congratulations are those who mourn. Congratulations for those who are poor in spirit. Congratulations for those who are persecuted. That, that's the correct reading. And what Jesus is saying is you're approved. You're on the right track. God sees you. God has his eye on you. Heaven applauds for you. So, so as we're unpacking the Beatitudes, People are going to say, you're going to look at your watch and you go, eight Beatitudes. How's that dude going to unpack all eight? I'm not. Uh, it's like having eight kids and you only have time to talk about a couple. I'm going to give you the first two. I don't want to stay on the surface. I want to teach you how to peel back each one of these by showing you the first two. And then I'm going to send you off this week and have you peel back the next six, right? Because if we get the first two right, they all build on one another. You, you can't understand number two unless you understand number one. You can't understand number three unless you understand number two. So I'm going to give you the first two, and then I'm going to have you go off and unpack the next six. So let's just dive into it. Look at the first beatitude. Look at how Jesus starts the greatest sermon ever. Blessed are those, congratulations to those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So let, let, let's unlock the first beatitude. Let's get this one right so we can get the rest of them right. What this beatitude is teaching us is, is how you approach God. Jesus says it's critically important for you to understand your approach to God matters. And many, many, many people are going to try to approach God transactionally. Let me show you what I'm talking about. So a lot of people have a life. You got your life and you say, you know what? I'm going to come to Jesus. I want to live for Jesus. I want to invest my life in the kingdom of Jesus. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to do the good things that he tells me to do. So for example, I'm going to say a prayer every day. And every prayer I say, man, that's got to be like a penny, right? So I'm just, I'm just every, every prayer is a penny. 
And then some people say, well, you know, I'm going to go to church today. I don't really feel like going to church, but I'm going to go to church today. That's got to be a nickel. So I go to church. Every church, I put a nickel in every time I go. The sermon was boring. The sermon was long. Well, that's got to be like a quarter, right? I'm just going to put a couple quarters in, man, because that brother needed some help. And then, man, we're, we're going through our day-to-day life, and somebody cuts us off on the Gene Snyder, and we're like, man, I didn't cuss him out. That's got to be a quarter, right? A couple quarters there. And then, you know, I read my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible for about 10 or 15 minutes. Man, that's got to be a quarter or, or a nickel. And then, man, we just every day, it's just like I'm living for the kingdom, and I'm establishing myself in the kingdom, and I'm living for Jesus. And, man, I don't drink. I don't chew, I don't date girls that do, right? So I'm just going to keep on living my life. And that's kind of how we live our life because what we want to do at the end of our life, when we buy the farm, when we go to cash in our chips, we want to be able to approach God and say, hey, look, I, 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 I tried my best. But here's the fallacy with trying to deal with God transactionally. Read this next passage of scripture out loud with me. Look at it. Let's read it together out loud. For the wages of sin is death. One more time out loud with me. For the wages of sin is death. I'm going to stop you on one word. Do it one more time. For the wages of, stop, sin. Notice, it doesn't say for the wages of sins, Plural. It says the wage of the wages of one sin. So, so transactionally, if I'm trying to live my best life and I'm trying to say, "Hey God, look at me! Look at all the good things I'm doing." We read we, we, right here: the wages of one sin is death. One sin totally bankrupts me. One sin totally cancels out everything I'm trying to do to show God I'm right with Him. You know what one sin does? One sin does this. That's what one sin does. One sin drains the whole thing. One sin prohibits any future deposits. That's what one sin does. One sin decimates me if I'm trying to deal with God transactionally. If that's what one sin does, can you imagine what all your sins do? Have you ever thought about how many times you sin in a day? Have you ever wondered how many sins you accumulate over the course of your life? Let's consider it today for the first time. So so how many sins? What what am I talking about? How many impure thoughts do you have per day? How many times have you ever taken God's name in vain per day? How many lies? How much lust? How much anger? How many times a day do you sin? Let's just have a little fun. Let's start when you're 10. Let's give you some grace. First nine years of your life, we won't count anything. Let's just start when you're 10. Let's say you live to be 80. You live a good long life. I'm going to give you 80. So 70 years. You got 70 years. How many sins do you commit over seven year, uh, 70 years? Well, let's do this way. Let me give you five sins per day. Now, some of you are going, I'll sign up for that deal. <laughs> you give me only five. Like, I'm more like 50 a day. I'm more like 30 a day. I'll, I'll gladly take five sins a day. But let's just give you five sins per day. If you do the math, you live 70 years. That's 25,550 days. Five sins a day equals 127,750 sins. If one sin does this, what does 127,000 sins do? It's got to be like whack-a-mole, right? 
And, and, and what I, I want to show you is you can't deal with God transactionally, right? What Jesus is saying about spiritual poverty has got to get our attention. Jesus says, congratulations, approved is the man or the woman who understands they are spiritually bankrupt. They're not just spiritually poor, they are spiritually dirt poor. They have no chips. They have no spiritual savings. They owe way more than they could ever accumulate in their life. That is what poor in spirit means. And Jesus illustrates this posture perfectly. Is that your posture? Woe is me, right? Jesus illustrates it perfectly when he teaches. Look at, Jesus, look at Luke chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus tells a story. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus looks at the crowd. He says, I tell you the truth. That man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus starts the greatest sermon ever by making sure that you and I understand our approach to God is significant. You want to be approved by God. You want, to, you want to hear congratulations by God. You want to know if you're on the right path. Are you poor in spirit? Do I recognize that when I come to Christ, I bring nothing? I have nothing that dazzles him. I possess no collateral. I am spiritually destitute. And most of us would would hopefully look back and say, yeah, I understood that. But, but <laughs> have, have we lost that? 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, 40 years later, after following Jesus for decades, do you still understand you're spiritually destitute? Do I still beat my chest and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Does grace still amaze me? Is my song, oh, I need me, oh, I need me, every hour I need me. Is that my song, or is my song, no, I need thee. Oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven to come, but the kingdom of heaven here on earth that's in our midst now belongs to the poor in spirit. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Congratulations to the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Beatitude number two. Blessed, congratulations, to those who mourn for they will be comforted. Well, isn't that special? Uh, again, congratulations to those who mourn. What, how, how do I figure that one out? What does that even mean? 
Well, some people would say, well, it's awesome because that means every, every morning we'll be comforted. Is that true? Well, like last fall when my Buckeyes missed a field goal to beat Georgia, and I mourned God is somehow going to lift that. He hadn't lifted that morning. I still grieve that thing. Or I'm, I'm in a bad marriage or I'm in a horrible job and I grieve and I mourn. Does God say, turn that frown upside down. I'm going to comfort you. Does, is Jesus saying every time you mourn and everything you mourn will be comforted? Is that what he's saying? No. You, you got to understand how these link. I told you, you can't understand number two until you understand number one. Beatitude two is connected to one. Beatitude three is connected to two. Beatitude four is connected to three. What Jesus is driving at, what Jesus is saying, the first beatitude hits me here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I know, I understand, I am spiritually bankrupt. Beatitude number two transfers from my head to my heart. I, I don't just know it, I grieve it. I feel it. I mourn it. The mourning Jesus is talking about is the sin in my life. I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm spiritually destitute, but I, I feel it. I agonize over what my sin did. I agonize over the cost of my sin and what Jesus had to pay for in order to redeem it. Do we, do we grieve our sin? Do we mourn our sin? We live in a world that doesn't grieve sin anymore. We live in a world that champions it, that celebrates it. And even though it was written thousands of years ago, it still rings true today to what God told the prophet Jeremiah. Look at Jeremiah 8, 12. God says, are they ashamed? God sees all the sin of his children. He said, are, are they ashamed of their disgusting actions? No, not at all. They don't even know, they don't even know how to blush. Isn't that our day? We don't, we, we, we don't even blush anymore. Things that we would used to go, oh, that is horrible. We don't even blush. When was the last time any one of us wept over sin? When was the last time you wept over sin? Not the sin of the world. That's the easy part. It's so easy to look around at the world and go, man, look at the, look at the immodesty. Look at the immorality. Look at the sin of the world, the music, the movies, the skinny jeans. Oh, we're going to hell. It's easy to grieve the sin of the world. But friends, when's the last time we grieved our personal sin? When is the last time you lamented, you wept over your own sin? The question is, do I constantly, do I consistently turn an inward eye to my own heart, my own thoughts, my own action? And when I see that sin inside of me, do I justify it? Do I ignore it? Do I numb it? Do I distance myself from it? Or do I actually take time to hold it and grieve it? When was the last time we prayed the prayer of Ezra? Oh my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift my face to you. My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Man, have, I, I can know I'm a sinner, but man, does it still stay with me? Does it still grieve me? There's one thing worse than sin. Did you know that? One thing worse than sin. It's the denial of sin. The denial of sin is worse than sin. You cannot become a disciple of Jesus until and unless you mourn, you grieve, you are torn apart by your own sin. What that sin did, what it cost to forgive. 
We will never ask forgiveness. We will never be forgiven if we're not truly sorry, remorseful for what we've done. So Jesus says, blessed, approved, congratulations are you when you mourn and continue to mourn over the sin of your life because you will be comforted. So the question is, well, what's the comfort? Forgiveness. That's, that's the comfort when we get it here and we get it here and we repent. God comes along and he brings forgiveness. That's, that's what David understood. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, when he crossed the line and he sinned, he did a lot of things initially, didn't he? He hid it. He tried to cover it up, tried to justify it, overlooked it. But finally, man, he owned it. Finally, he grieved it. Finally, he mourned over it. And I want you to listen to his journey. Look at Psalm 32, the psalm he wrote about that whole adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Blessed, there's our word, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. Now watch what he says. When I kept silent, when, when I tried to ignore my sin, hide my sin, cover my sin away, I wasted away. Through my groan, I groaned all day long. Day and night, his hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then what? I acknowledged. I acknowledged my sin to you. It didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave, you forgave the guilt of my sin. When David finally, when he finally broke and he finally confessed and wept and lamented over his sin, and he asked the Lord to forgive him, and the slate was wiped clean. He was restored. He was comforted. So, so, so friends, the first two, greatest sermon ever told, greatest sermon ever preached. Eight Beatitudes. First one, blessed are the poor in spirit. I know in my mind, I know in my mind I am spiritually wrecked. I am spiritually Bankrupt. I am spiritually destitute. I bring nothing to the table. I owe a debt I could never repay. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. It goes way beyond a mental understanding of sin. It moves into my heart. I have sinned against a holy God, and I will not ignore. I will not cover up. I will not justify. I will grieve, and I will continue to grieve the sin in my life. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And I not only will confess my sin to God, I will resolve to kill it. I will do whatever I need to do to distance myself from that sin. Then you will be comforted. Friend, first two Beatitudes. You, you've got six more waiting for you this week. It's kind of like having, a, having eight kids and you only have time to talk about two. There are six other kids that that are just as deserving, and you've got six other Beatitudes that are waiting for you to plumb the depths. May you find lots of buried treasure in those eight Beatitudes. Let me pray. Hey, it's Matt Zola again. That was a powerful message we just heard. I pray that what we have learned today wouldn't just be stored in our minds, but would move into our hearts and help us to be conformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus. And I pray that that message helped you become a better follower of Jesus and taught you how to love, live, and lead like Jesus. 
If you want to talk with somebody about something you just heard or you want prayer for something going on in your life, there's somebody on staff who would love to connect with you. Why don't you email us at office at ferncreekcc.org and we want to put a name to your face. We want to know your story and we want to connect with you in person if we can. Again, that's office at ferncreekcc.org. You know, one of the things we value at Fern Creek Christian Church is being a part of community. If you've been listening to our sermons online or you've been watching our services on YouTube or Facebook, why don't you come visit us in person one Sunday? We would love to get to know who you are, and we believe that we grow better as followers of Jesus in community and not in isolation. You know, God gives us community as a gift. We have services every Sunday morning, 845, 10, and 1115, and we hope that you'll feel welcomed enough to be able to join us and worship with us in person. Thanks for tuning in today. Grace, peace, bless others this week.